after painting a few uh, broad strokes last time and uh, issuing more than a few promissory notes, today we uh, get down to work a little bit. There may even be an argument or two if you're lucky. Um, just to recap a little bit from, uh, from last time, I talked about scrutability theses, of which the general form is there's a compact class C of truths so that all truths are scrutable from C. And compact, the first approximation, meant small and non-trivializing. The paradigm of the relevant compact class C of truths was Laplace's scrutability base, you know, the uh, physical truths at a time and fundamental laws. We also talked about Carnap's scrutability base, the, uh, the base involving phenomenal similarity or purely logical structure. But as we saw, compact bases can well be uh, bigger than that. And then we had a few different senses of scrutability. Scrutability in general means in some sense you're able to get to all truths from the, uh, the base truths. We had a few different senses. I'll start with the uh, propositional senses that we started with last time, just for a reminder. Three senses. Our P is, a proposition P is empirically scrutable from a class of proposition C if, if a Laplacian intellect knew all members of C, it would be in a position to know P. P is conditionally scrutable from C if and only if a Laplacian intellect would be in a position to know that if all members of C obtain then P. That's formulated in terms of conditional knowledge. And P is a priori scrutable from C, if and only if a Laplacian intellect could know a priori that if all members of C obtain, then P. So those were formulated in terms of, uh, of propositions. Now, Laplacian intellect was, roughly speaking, to a, uh, uh, an ideal reasoner or a sufficiently ideal reasoner, as Laplace puts it, a vast enough intellect. For today's purposes, it's uh, more useful to put things in a sentential form. I'm actually going to uh, spend a fair amount of time on the sentential versus the propositional, the issue of sentential versus propositional formulations at the beginning of the uh, next lecture. And those of you who have looked at the online manuscript will have noticed that there's a bit about, there in, uh, about that issue in chapter 2 already, but for, for today's purposes I'll just uh, lay it out in sentential form. Here the idea is we'll actually do it for a, to um, avoid worries about context dependence, we're actually going to do it for uttered sentences S, for utterances or for, uh, for sentence tokens at least the truths which are scrutable or, or not scrutable, the truths in question will be such sentence tokens, the truths in the base will be sentence types so S is empirically scrutable from C if and only if if the speaker knew all members of C she'd be in a position to know S. I'll say more next time about just what it is to know a sentence token or type, but for now you can go with the intuitive understanding of knowing a sentence in terms of just knowing the proposition that the sentence expresses. S is conditionally scrutable from C if and only if the speaker is in a position to the speaker is in a position to know that if all members of C obtain, then S obtains. And S is a priori scrutable from C if and only if 
the speaker is in a position to know a priori that if all members of C obtain, then S obtains. Now, the thesis that was the uh, most important for my purposes last time was the uh, a priori scrutability thesis. I suggest that if something like that thesis holds, then we can use it to vindicate at least some of the, uh, the projects of Carnap in the, uh, the Aufbau and apply it to various other philosophically interesting projects. Today I'm going to, uh, to set a priori scrutability aside and focus mostly on the first two, empirical scrutability and conditional scrutability. This is partly because my argument for a priori scrutability is going to go through these theses. In particular, it's going to go through conditional scrutability and I'll uh, set aside the argument from there to a priori scrutability for the next lecture. The central one I'm interested to defend is conditional scrutability. Empirical scrutability has some problems, as we'll see. I still think it raises some interesting issues to think about, though, and those will come up along the way. Now, for present purposes, I'm not going to try to argue that, uh, for immediate purposes, I'm not going to try to argue that all truths are empirically or conditionally scrutable from a relevant compact class of C truths. I'll lower my sights in a couple of ways. One of the ways in which I'm lowering the sights for today is to restrict attention to a, uh, to a subset of the class of all truths, a relatively well-behaved set of truths, which I'll call uh, ordinary truths. And I'll argue there's a compact class C of truths such that all ordinary truths are scrutable from C. So ordinary truths, broadly speaking, you know, macroscopic truths about the, uh, about the natural world, Roughly speaking, you know, the biological and the, uh, the chemical world, uh, water's H2O, life on our planet is based on DNA, platypi are mammals, and since we're dealing with, with tokens here, uttered by normal human speakers. There are all kinds of hard cases, which I'll set aside for later uh, in the fifth lecture. Mathematical truths, truths about the mental, moral truths, modal truths, Truths about the social, metaphysical, ontological truths, uh, truths, truths essentially involving vague expressions, in particular borderline cases, um, sentences expressing borderline cases of vague expressions, uh, sentences involving names, utterances used with semantic deference, and so on. All those are going to be uh, deferred to later. I won't actually be able to deal with all of them in, uh, in one talk in a few weeks, but I'll, so I'll try to deal with a few of them. Today, as I said, of, as, today, as I said, I'll focus on conditional and empirical scrutability with issues about a priori scrutability for next time. Are we getting some odd noises here? Is this making any difference? Okay for now? Okay. Let's see what happens. Okay. Um... And now, okay, what's the relevant compact class of truths going to be that I deal with today? Well, another sense in which I'm lowering the science for today, the thought is for today we'll deal with a fairly generous base. We won't try to uh, go for the smallest possible scrutability base, a minimal one. Instead, we'll build in a fair amount of stuff to make the job easier for now, while still having a base which is interestingly small and clearly qualifies as compact. Later on, we'll look at making it smaller. The base I'll use is, a, uh, is a, a class I'll call PQTI. A few of you, this may be uh, familiar to a few of you, because in a uh, paper with Frank Jackson a few years ago, we uh, 
And we talked about uh, very similar, actually, there we had a big conjunctive truth called PQTI, closely uh, related to this truth. I mean, that, that paper was... Um, the argument... The thesis I'm arguing for in, uh, in the current talk is not unrelated to the thesis we argued for in that paper. I think, as you'll see, the arguments and the argument strategies are, uh, are rather different. Um, the compact class of truths here, then, PQTI, includes, well, roughly five things for a, uh, for a start. P, which is a, a class of truths, class of microphysical and macrophysical truths. I mean, fundamental physical truths, fundamental truths of physics in the vocabulary of a correct fundamental physics. But I'll also allow what I call macrophysical truths, which are, you know, arbitrary truths about, um, about physical objects in the vocabulary of classical physics. So um, space, time, mass, and derivative spatiotemporal times like velocity, forces, and so on, if necessary. Um, Again, that's just in the spirit of, uh, of generosity. It may well be that the macrophysical truths we can ultimately get from the, uh, from the macrophysical truths, but it's still a highly restricted vocabulary. I should say that I'm largely going to set aside issues about quantum mechanics here, so we can take ourselves for now to be assuming not necessarily an uh, entirely classical physics in the, uh, in the base, but a relatively classical physics, perhaps a, uh, you know, a Bohmian. We can work with the Bohmian interpretation of quantum mechanics for now, if you like. And then those issues can again be revisited later. Q will be the class of phenomenal truths. Truths about conscious experience. Truths about what it's like to be a conscious subject in what I call a pure phenomenal vocabulary. The details of that don't matter too much, but the rough idea is the kind of expression such that by, you know, by grasping these truths, one understands what it's like to be a subject in question. In the spirit of generosity, I think it's also, for certain purposes, useful to build in a bit more here into, uh, into Q. For example, build in some other mental truths, intentional truths about what subjects believe, what they desire. Secondary quality truths about the distribution of secondary qualities over objects in the world, colors, pictures, tastes, and so on. I say these are optional because they both raise a couple of problematic issues. It's not obvious. Not everyone accepts there are secondary quality truths. If we do go with secondary quality truths, I think we should restrict them to normal human secondary qualities, at least for now. And with intentional truths, there's a worry about trivializing mechanisms in the background, one I'll talk a lot more about in the, uh, in the fifth talk. But for certain purposes, it's useful to build them in. I think one can do without them. T is a, uh, a that's all sentence, roughly saying that this is all um, there is in the world. By giving P and Q, then there's not a whole bunch of other stuff, like you know, ghosts or angels or who, know, who knows what, hanging around. One way to put that is by saying all truths are themselves scrutable from the rest of the, uh, the truths, PQI. Actually, I'll, I'll save issues of formulation for just a second. Um, I, indexical truths, I am such and such, now is such and such, where oneself and the current time is picked out, perhaps with a, uh, a definite description in the vocabulary of PQ and T. And finally, I'll allow laws and counterfactuals in the vocabulary of P and Q, insofar as there are such truths, um, truths about laws, 
truths about what would have been the case under certain circumstances specified with antecedents and consequences consequence in the vocabulary of P and Q. So an awful lot built in there, but still a compact, I think pretty clearly a compact vocabulary. Now, one tricky issue here is, uh, comes with the characterization of T. So that's all true. There's one pretty obvious way to characterize T. I mean, in the case of um, the that's all truth is fairly familiar from discussions of physicalism and, uh, and supervenience. In the case of physicalism, one natural way to characterize T is to say that uh, the world is a minimal world in which, uh, say, these physical truths obtain, or all positive truths are necessitated by P. The trouble is that those formulations are modal formulations using the notion of necessity of possible world. The corresponding natural formulation here is something like um, all positive truths are a priori entailed by base truths. And that's a characterization which brings in the notion of a priority. One reason I want to start with empirical and conditional scrutability is to avoid issues about a priority at this point and controversies over the a priori. So, if possible, it would be nice to avoid bringing in the, the very notion of the a priori into the base at this point. So, I think there's an alternative way to proceed without um, building T into the base. And this is to argue instead, instead of arguing that all truths are scrutable from PQTI, argue that all ordinary positive truths are scrutable from PQI. Where here a positive truth is one such that if it holds in a scenario, it holds in all outstripping scenarios. And here the idea is there's an uh, intuitive relation of outstripping between uh, scenarios. In the first instance, start with possible worlds. The idea that one world outstrips another world when intuitively it contains an uh, intrinsic duplicate of the, uh, the first world. So, you know, a world like this one with a bunch of angels or a bunch of extra consciousness in it and everything else is the same will outstrip this world. Um, so then the thought is a positive truth is one such that if it holds in a scenario, holds in all outstripping scenarios. This takes the notion of a, uh, takes the modal notion of a, uh, of a positive truth and moves it into an epistemic key. The details are a bit fiddly, but they don't matter too much for present purposes. Or intuitively, we can just say a truth that can't conceivably be falsified by adding to a world. So it looks like there's more, there are more than five particles, for example. That looks like a, uh, a positive truth holds in, all, holds in a given scenario, holds in all scenarios that intuitively contain it. But not, on the other hand, there's no ectoplasm, everything alive is made of DNA, and on you go. I don't claim this distinction corresponds exactly to the intuitive distinction between negative, positive truth, classed in, in terms of logical form, but it's the notion that's useful for our purposes. Given this notion, given this claim that all ordinary positive truths are scrutable from PQI, I think you can get back to the claim that all ordinary truths are scrutable from PQTI, or at least given the claim that all positive truths are scrutable from PQI, you can get to the claim that all truths are scrutable from PQI, non-trivially. I think you need a couple of claims there, in particular S5 for something like the a priori modality, but um, I think that case can be made. Okay. So that's all background, really. Now I'll get to, uh, to argument. Um, initial argument for the scrutability of all ordinary truths from this base. And uh, for this purpose, I'm going to uh, invoke 
a hypothetical device, which I will call the Cosmoscope. Um, the Cosmoscope, well, the easiest way to get a grip on Cosmoscope is by thinking about Google. You all know, uh, you all know Google Maps, right? Use it quite a lot. You know Google, Google Earth and so on. It has these multiple views of the world. You know, the satellite view and the, uh, the street view and the, uh, the map view. Well, the Cosmoscope is really Google Cosmos. It's coming one of these days. You just know it. Um, I mean, but far more powerful than any of the Google devices to, uh, to date. I mean, who knows what they'll do in a few years. The Cosmoscope is a, a virtual reality device, roughly, that stores the information in PQI and makes it usable. So it contains about at least five components. First, a supercomputer to store all that information in PQI and to perform a lot of relevant calculations and manipulations. Second, holographic tools that zoom and display, that zoom in and out and display information about matter in regions. Here it's very much like the, uh, the Google model at all the different scales, three-dimensional scales, and we can go through time as well, you know, little movies of different areas of, of space and time. We can use the information in for example, the macrophysical information in P to characterize what's going on in those spaces macrophysically and display a little geometrical movie. If we have things like secondary qualities built in, we can even have colors and the like in there, just as Google Maps does. Um, three, we'll have virtual reality for knowledge of experience. So I guess number two we can think of as well, you might have thought of it as number two as some TV screens. Maybe it's better to think of it actually as a, as a holodeck, like on, uh, like on Star Trek. We wander through this uh, three-dimensional space. A more sophisticated cosmoscope might in interface directly with one's imagination, giving one imaginative recreations of certain areas of, of space-time with relevant spatiotemporal imagery. The third component basically gives you knowledge of experience. It takes the information in Q um, to give you knowledge of Experience. It gives you, an, again, maybe best to think of it as an imaginative recreation of certain streams of consciousness. So, um, you know, if I want to know what my experience was like, at a, it'll have a representation of what my experience was like at a certain time in the past. This will be a very, very sophisticated virtual reality device, such as, you know, pretty, put my, my, um, my cosmoscope helmet on, and it'll give me some form of imaginative recreation of a certain of my stream of consciousness as it was then, enabling me to know what it was like to, me, to be me then, or to be someone else, or even in principle, to be a bat. Um, certain forms of idealization of one's cognitive capacities are clearly going to be required to even use a cosmoscope, but uh, I think that's okay for present purposes. Fourth, are you a here market? Just, uh, you know, Google, and if, you, if you've ever used uh, Google on the iPhone, at least. There's a little, little button you can press, and you get a little, uh, little blue dot, and it, uh, it shows where you are on the, on the map, and it moves around with you. Well, I mean, here, we'll, have, we'll use the information in I, the indexical truths, to uh, give you a little indication of you are here. And fifth, we'll have a simulation mechanism for knowledge of counterfactuals. After all, we're going to have all those counterfactual truths, too, so we'll be able to ask it, you know, feed in, change things around in PQI a little bit, specify a certain antecedent, use this knowledge of counterfactuals or laws to tell us, to display at least some information about what's going to happen, conditional on those antecedents, insofar 
as there are truths about them, might have to be displayed in some partial or indeterminate way, but uh, presumably can at least give us some guidance. And there's the, uh, there's the, uh, the cosmoscope. Now, you might think this, uh, the cosmoscope is such a, uh, such a remarkable device that no one would ever have uh, invented one yet, and you couldn't even imagine what one would look like. And this was, this was actually what I thought as well, but I uh, actually got on the web and did a search for the cosmoscope, for a cosmoscope. And to my surprise, I actually found a picture of a cosmoscope on the web, which I'm pleased to present for your, uh, for your edification now. This is what a cosmoscope looks like. <laughs> you, you can even see all the little places. Here's where you look in for the, uh, for the spatiotemporal view, and here's where you plug in for the phenomenological view. There are the, uh, the counterfactual tweaking mechanisms, and, uh, and on you go. It's quite a, quite a remarkable thing. Um, okay, so now, more, a little bit more on the, uh, on the cosmoscope. One can use a cosmoscope in a couple of different modes, what I'll call empirical mode and conditional mode. A cosmoscope in empirical mode tells one about the character of one's own world, you know, the character of the world you are in when using the cosmoscope. And you know, if, insofar as the cosmoscope is itself a physical device, it'll have pictures of the cosmoscope, and on you go. This is relevant. This, I think, is the most relevant mode for empirical scrutability. One can also use a cosmoscope in conditional mode. Cosmoscope in conditional mode tells one about a scenario that may or may not be one's own world to enable conditional conclusions. I mean, you can imagine something like, you know, the cosmoscope taking a snapshot of a certain possible world or of this world. Then we go to a counterfactual scenario where someone's using a cosmoscope with conditional information that describes that original world um, that's not true of the world where the cosmoscope is used. So then we could even have a cosmoscope that tells us all about a world where there is no cosmoscope. And we could entertain conditionals, conclusions conditional on a specification of such a world. Well, that's relevant to conditional and a priori scrutability. Now, so okay, how, is that, how are we going to use a cosmoscope? Well, we started... Uh, we got our scrutability theses, we formulated them in terms of subjects making utterances of sentences. So say a subject utters a sentence, S, like, um, here's what the weather, you know, the weather is going to be fine tomorrow or the next, uh, there'll be a general election, another general election in the UK within the next two years, or Oswald shot Kennedy. Then they could, in principle, use a cosmoscope to investigate the truth of S. A couple of different ways. In empirical mode, you could just uh, you know, use your cosmoscope and zoom in on all the different views and different bits of the world and get a handle on the truth of S directly. Or in conditional mode, after having made such an utterance, you can determine whether, if things are as this particular cosmoscope is now describing, S is true, where one's agnostic on whether things actually are that way. Now, it's important to note here that the concepts in S, you know, using the use of concepts like, uh, like high-level concepts like weather and election and uh, water and Kennedy, and if, if they're used, those concepts aren't built in to the cosmoscope. The cosmoscope is just dealing with the information in PQI and doing manipulations and macro-macrophysical information and phenomenological information. Any concepts used in S are possessed by the subject, and uh, the subject needs to take that information delivered 
by the cosmoscope and make, uh, make certain inferences with it. Likewise, reasoning using those concepts is done by the subject. I'll also take it, at least for today, that the subject has ordinary human background knowledge. I'm not trying to defend the a priori scrutability thesis today, so I don't need to uh, talk about subjects uh, which have you know, no empirical information, Cartesian superbabies, which are, which are just capable of, uh, of reasoning alone. For today, I'll presuppose a subject with ordinary human background knowledge, although I'll end up arguing that such knowledge isn't essential to uh, relevant scrutability theses. So, knowledge via the cosmoscope, I think it's clear the cosmoscope delivers multiple views of the world, like the, uh, the satellite view and the, uh, the street view, the map view. Here, though, we've got a phenomenological view of arbitrary subjects telling you what it's like to be those subjects. Geometrical views, giving you geometrical readouts of things like you know, mass density, densities of mass in certain areas of space and time. Distributions of color through space and time if we have a secondary quality information. Counterfactual views, views of the world conditional on all kinds of counterfactual antecedents. Microphysical views, specifying the character of fundamental physics in uh, whatever format is appropriate. At all locations and scales of space and time. I think it's pretty clear, even just initially, that one could use this to come to know very many ordinary truths. Who shot Kennedy? I guess that's not actually an ordinary truth, as I've uh, specified it, but in any case, it's pretty plausible. One could use a, cos- use a cosmoscope to come to know it. Did a comet kill the dinosaurs? Is there life on other planets? So I think one could put this into the form of, a, uh, of an argument, which I'll call the cosmoscope argument. First premise, all ordinary truths are scrutable from a cosmoscope. Where scrutable from a cosmoscope roughly means the obvious thing. Um, we'll have different versions of, for empirical scrutability and conditional scrutability. Scrutable from the canonical deliverances of a cosmoscope in, in, um, in conditional mode, in empirical mode. Conditionally scrutable, if you can get to those conclusions. Um, conditional on such and such, given a cosmoscope in conditional mode. If a truth is scrutable from a cosmoscope, it's scrutable from PQI. Conclusion. All ordinary truths are scrutable from PQI. Okay, now why I believe the, uh, the premises? Well, first, something on, uh, on premise two. Well, I think it's pretty clear. The cos- what's the cosmoscope doing? It's basically a tool that provides the information in PQI to a human subject in a particularly convenient and easy-to-use form perhaps along with certain tools for calculations and reasoning with this information. It's pretty plausible that uh, anything that can be known with the aid of a cosmoscope could in principle be known by a sufficiently powerful reasoner given the information in PQI without the aid of a cosmoscope. The cosmoscope isn't doing anything that a sufficiently ideal reasoner couldn't do. Really what the cosmoscope is doing is it's acting to offload some of the idealization from the, from the subject into the environment. It may well be that for some purposes, even using a cosmoscope, we need to engage in some idealization on the speaker. So, so I'm not removing idealization from cognitive capacities, but this is offloading some of it into the environment. Yeah, I mean, the, really the only purpose of the cosmoscope here is, the, the purpose is twofold. Purpose one is to offload some of the idealization into the environment, maybe to uh, 
make the relevant cognitive idealization at least a bit smaller, and second, to make vivid what one could do if one had all the information in PQI. So there, for that purpose, the cosmoscope is just an aid to the imagination. Anyway, conclusion. Any truth scrutable from a cosmoscope is scrutable from PQI. So I think there's a prima facie case for that. Premise one. I'm going to say a lot more about premise one um, in just a little bit later. But for now, here's a first, a first pass case for premise one. I mean, think about what you get from P and Q. Um, by the way, the handout's not going to come back into it for a little while now. So, again, the handout is just a summary of certain key theses to refer back to. P enables knowledge of geometrical structure and dynamics at all level, all levels, distributions of mass through space and time. With Q, also distributions of qualities through space and time with secondary qualities. Q enables knowledge of experience of all kinds of subjects and knowledge, indeed, knowledge of appearance by all kinds of subjects. Knowledge of the kinds of experiences produced by arbitrary objects and, indeed, knowledge of their secondary qualities and the like if we built that in together. PQI enables knowledge of actual and counterfactual appearance of bodies of matter in one's environment, their behavior in, broadly speaking, geometrical spatiotemporal terms, their low-level physical composition, their distribution throughout space and time. So it enables knowledge of an awful lot. Even um, so. I mean, it gives us, it's arguable this gives us at least the, the kind of information that we go by in ordinary perceptual investigation of the world, a point I'll come back to shortly. Furthermore, even some stuff which, there might be some stuff which is left open by ordinary perceptual investigation of the world because we don't have experiences of them, the future, the past, the, the, uh, the very small. Um, there might be skeptical worries about whether things really are as our perception seems, but it looks like PQI even has the information built in especially in P, but also, um, also elsewhere, to verify whether things, to see how things are in the, uh, the past, the future, and so on. So there's a prima facie case, I think, that knowing this enables one to know all ordinary truths. With this kind of information, you could just, you'd have the information it takes to figure out that uh, that stuff out there, the H2O, that's, that's water, that, um, that platypi are mammals, and on you go. I'm going to come back to this, uh, to this thesis much more in, the, in section four, to give a more sustained argument for it. Now, let's see. Empirical and conditional scrutability. Maybe for reasons of time, I'll just briefly go over a couple of issues specific to empirical and conditional scrutability. I mean, there are just a couple of fiddly and interesting issues involving empirical scrutability, which I don't think are really essential to the overall argument scheme here. In fact, for the purposes of argument, it's possible to go straight to conditional scrutability. Still, empirical scrutability is interesting for a couple of purposes. First, I think it can, it provides, where conditional scrutability and a priori scrutability seem to be sort of broadly rationalist thesis about what one can know conditional, what one can know conditionally on the world from a background of very little. Empirical scrutability is a more broadly empiricist thesis about, you know, if one actually went out and investigated the world, what could one come to know? So the thought is it's a way of bringing in someone of a more empiricist orientation. Second, some of the issues which come up here are tied to Fitch's paradox and unknowable truth are just interesting. But I'll, um, I'll just briefly uh, mention 
this, the particular kinds of fiddly issues which come up for empirical scrutability and then for conditional scrutability. I mean, empirical scrutability, remember, said that for all ordinary truths, yes, if the speaker knew all members of PQI, she'd be in a position to know, yes. Now, that should raise some uh, red flags, I think, for a lot of people, people who have thought about uh, Fitch's paradox, Fitch's problem, uh, and the like, which suggest there are some propositions, and indeed plausibly some sentences, that can't be known. So what's going on here? Well, I mean, I think one... Um, so take the truth, the Q and no one knows. Q, it looks like that's a truth that, uh, that can't be known for reasons I discussed the last time. Furthermore, when you think about it, I think some of these more specific truths, like P, Q, or PQI, consider this conjunctive truths. If PQI is a truth which is only true in um, a world with a very specific physical and phenomenal format, and let's say it's a world where no one knows PQI, let's say that any world where someone actually knew PQI would have to be a physically different world. I mean, knowledge of PQI would require someone with a very big brain, you might think, different physical configuration, certainly different phenomenology. Um, it would be, have to be a world where PQI is full. So it looks like PQ, PQI are themselves truths that, uh, that can't be known. In the worlds where they're true, they're not known. Um, another example is, it, is the truth, just say it is a truth, that sadly there's no cosmoscope in our world. And, you know, could you use a cosmoscope to come to know that truth? Well, it appears not in the domain of uh, empirical scrutability. So what's going on here? Well, my diagnosis here is all of these truths have something in common. I call them Fitchian truths, because I take Fitch's truth to be a paradigm. Roughly speaking, they're truths that are unknowable because properly investigating their truth value would change their truth value. Um, you know, so trying to figure out whether PQI is... Um, trying to figure out whether Q and no one knows Q. Well, just say Q is knowable, as we might as well presume. Then, okay, first thing you do is figure out that Q is true. You, you investigate Q's truth value, figure out that it's true, and, um, and then it would no longer be true that, uh, that no one knows Q. So the conjunctive truth, what was a conjunctive truth, would now be false in this counterfactual world where one does the investigation, does the investigation, and so on for the other cases. So this suggests a few possible solutions. I mean, the easiest thing is just to move to conditional scrutability, where these worries don't arise. You might try tricks. You might consider things like noting, noticing that this is a counterfactual with an impossible antecedent if the speaker knew all members of PQI and trying to do some fancy, fancy semantics for such counterfactuals. Maybe build in something like new enough members of PQI into the antecedent. You might try changing the consequent to something like know whether S is the case instead of know that S is the case. Or indeed, you might just try changing the antecedent to for all ordinary non-Fitchian truths. All of those, I think, are, have some promise. There's a, all of them also have some problems. I mean, it's kind of fun to think about how this goes in the context of a cosmoscope, particularly. I mean, one question is to... I mean, the whole worry here was these methods, these counterfactual methods of investigating truths are going to change the truths about the world. And introducing a cosmoscope... Just say, take our world without a cosmoscope. Now, consider using a cosmoscope to come to know our world. Well, that would change the world. You might think, okay, well, we at least want to minimize the impact of the cosmoscope on the world and thereby minimize the number of Fitchian truths, those whose truth value is changed by the use of this method of investigation. So you might try to, for example, to suppose the cosmoscope is a non-physical device that only affects a local piece of space-time, the cosmoscope room, so to speak and then erases all traces. So you get to use a cosmoscope just once, and uh, you go in, and 
lock, lock yourself in the room with a cosmoscope, come to a verdict, and then at the end of it, all memories are erased and things outside that little chunk of space-time are as they were without the cosmoscope. Um, I think the best method here is actually what I call an incomplete... Then the question is, what does the cosmoscope actually tell you? Does it tell you about the old world without the cosmoscope, the new world with the cosmoscope, or what they had in common? I think the best is actually get the cosmoscope to tell you what they had in common. PQI minus, truth common to the original world and the world of use. So it's got a little black black spot at the middle saying, here is the cosmoscope. You may not, uh, you may not know anything about, uh, about, uh, about this area, but it tells you about what's going on outside the room. And then you can make the case, roughly, that all non-local truths, those concerning what's, those not depending on what's going on inside the cosmoscope, are scrutable from PQI minus. This thesis avoids worries, I think, about Fitchian truths. So that's, you know, this I think is worth, um, worth some attention in the context of minimizing a, a Fitch problem, but really not essential to the argument. Conditional scrutability, on the other hand, is important for the, uh, for the argument. Um, essential to the arguments that follow. Conditional scrutability says, for all ordinary truths, yes, let's put it as follows, the speaker is in a position to know that if PQI prime, then S, where PQI prime is a conjunction of the truths in the class PQI, perhaps an infinitary conjunction if necessary. There was a lot to be said about what conditional knowledge involves. I discussed this at, at length in, uh, in chapter 2 of uh, the manuscript, but I think for present purposes we don't need to get into too much detail. The rough idea is conditional knowledge should be understood by analogy with conditional belief. You know, you can say someone believes that if it's raining outside then people are carrying umbrellas. You can say someone knows that if it's raining outside people are carrying umbrellas. And prima facie this looks like it requires something more than knowledge of a material conditional, but at least some kind of, you know, conditional credence, high conditional credence justified conditional credence in the case of knowledge and perhaps something more besides. Lost to, lost to say about that. There are some issues, by the way, about self-doubt cases, I think, which apply especially to conditional scrutability as well as empirical scrutability. Cases where actually in the world one is unreliable about a certain subject matter. One conditionally supposes one's taken a drug that makes one bad at mathematics. What should one then conclude conditionally on that? And I think that requires some special treatment, especially in the idealization. Again, I discussed that in the, uh, in the manuscript, but I'll try to uh, I'll, I'll skip over it here now then, to argue for conditional well, I think the argument from conditional scrutability basically, the, I mean the cosmoscope argument can, can be used to argue directly for conditional scrutability all ordinary truths are conditionally scrutable from a cosmoscope and so from PQI, and the argument from knowability, which I'm about to give can also be used to argue for it there is a thought, I won't go over this somewhat complicated-looking argument from empirical to conditional scrutability. But here the thought is, just say you had established that watered-down empirical scrutability thesis that I discussed a uh, couple of minutes ago, where we excluded certain Fitchian truths, in particular the non-local truths, and just say we'd established empirical scrutability of those. Well, then one thought is we apply something like a conditionalization. I mean, a uh, condition... Could, the style of reasoning involved in the principle of conditionalization to say, well, if upon knowing PQI or PQI minus you can know M, then before knowing them, you're in a position to know that if PQI minus, then M. I think you can make that case. Now, so far, that's restricted to non-local um, non ordinary truths M, but then we say, okay, well, the same actually applies to local 
ordinary truths. And here the thought is that, okay, well, local, locality of truths, the Fitchian nature of certain truths, the fact that their truth value changes on investigation, poses a distinctive obstacle for empirical scrutability, but no special obstacle for conditional scrutability. So those ones, if all the other ones are conditionally scrutable, these ones ought to be conditionally scrutable too, and then we get to the conclusion. But for present purposes, I think the direct argument will do. Now I think what I'll do, um, what I'll concentrate on for the remaining time is, a, is another argument, which I'll call the argument from knowability. So, grab a drink. This is another way of arguing that all ordinary truths are scrutable from PQI. We could cast this, if one wanted, as an argument for the thesis that all ordinary truths are scrutable from a cosmoscope, and therefore as an argument for the relevant premise of the cosmoscope argument. But I think one can also just cast it as a direct argument for scrutability from PQI, called the argument from, uh, from knowability. Okay, premise one, all knowable ordinary truths are scrutable from PQI. That's something I'll argue for in a second. Second, if all, sorry, if all knowable ordinary truths are scrutable from PQI, all unknowable ordinary truths are scrutable from PQI. And here the thought is that distinctive obstacles um, raised by unknowability are not obstacles to scrutability for ordinary truths. Third, all ordinary, all ordinary truths are knowable or unknowable. Help myself to an instance of excluded middle here. Uh, four, all ordinary truths are scrutable from PQI. So I think the conclusion follows from the premises. The, uh, the key premises are premises one and two, which I'll say a bit about now. So case for premise one. The basic case for premise one is the following. Well, think about how it is that you know ordinary truths. Here's a plausible claim, I think. All knowable ordinary truths are knowable in principle through perception introspection and reasoning. Well, you might make a stronger claim that all knowledge all knowledge involves knowledge through perception, introspection, and reasoning. I'm making here a somewhat weaker claim that all knowable ordinary truths are knowable through perception, introspection, and reasoning. A bit more on what that means in what follows exactly, but six. Any truth knowable through perception, introspection, and reasoning is scrutable from PQI. Well, here the thought is, what is it that perception, introspection, and reasoning gives you? Perception gives you basically certain forms of perceptual information. To the first, in the first instance, information about the distribution of primary and secondary qualities in the world, shapes and colors, precisely the kind of information which is built into PQI. This argument, I think, goes best if we assume the version of PQI that has secondary qualities and intentional truths built in, although I think one can still run a version of it without them. Now... Any truth knowable through introspection, well, phenomenal truths are built in directly, and if you think introspection delivers knowledge of, uh, of intentional truths, then we can take the version where that's built in as well. And then reasoning from that basis. Well, the reasoning part, the thought is, well, the reasoning will be available to the user of the cosmoscope. Okay, those two, collusion, those two uh, premises together give you the conclusion, um, the relevant premise, that all knowable ordinary truths are scrutable from PQI. Now, there are a couple of things you might question there, and I'm going to return in a second to ways in which you might question them. For example, whether 
the role of perception is limited to delivering information about primary and secondary qualities in the environment. Case for premise two. Well, here's a thought. All unknowable ordinary truths are either Fitchian truths, the kind of truths I've already characterized, or what I'll call remote truths. So a remote truth is one that's unknowable because of physical barriers, roughly, of space, time, observation. Truths which are unknowable, at least by a given subject, because they're about the, uh, the distant past or the distant future, the, the very small, the inside of a black hole, on you go. Truths which involve certain forms of barriers. Now here's the, uh, then, okay, a couple of further premises. If all noble ordinary truths are scrutable from PQI, all remote ordinary truths are scrutable from PQI. What's the thought here? Here the thought is that remoteness, although an obstacle to knowability, is not an obstacle to scrutability. So being in the distant future or the distant past is not an obstacle to scrutability from PQI. After all, your cosmoscope, can, all that information will be built in, your cosmoscope can focus in on the relevant bits of the past or the future. Likewise, the very big, the very small, and on you go. Remoteness, although an obstacle to knowability, is not an obstacle to scrutability. Therefore, if all non-remote truths are scrutable from PQI, and if all noble ordinary truths are scrutable from PQI, all that are unknowable simply because they're remote ought to be scrutable too. Ten, this is doing something similar for Fitchian truths. We say if all noble ordinary truths are scrutable from PQI, then all Fitchian ordinary truths are at least conditionally scrutable from PQI. Here the thought is similar to what went on in the last premise. The thought is although the Fitchian nature of a truth, the fact that certain methods of investigation if they were to be investigated, their truth value would be different. That's an obstacle to empirical scrutability of those truths. It's not an obstacle to their conditional scrutability, as we talked about last time and again this time. The Fitch truth or the other truth I mentioned, or the other truths I mentioned, um, there appears to be no distinctive obstacle to conditional scrutability there. So if all the noble ones are scrutable, all the ones which are unknowable because they're Fitchian ought to at least be conditionally scrutable. Now, we do know that being Fitchian can be an obstacle to empirical scrutability. So certainly one, one wouldn't want to build in the claim that all Fitchian ordinary truths are empirically scrutable. Conclusion. If all knowable ordinary truths are scrutable from PQI, all unknowable ordinary truths are at least conditionally scrutable from PQI. Where empirical scrutability is concerned, we've got to get a weaker conclusion with a qualification for Fitchian truths. All non-Fitchian unknowable ordinary truths are empirically scrutable from PQI. Conclusions of the argument. Uh, well, for conditional scrutability, I think we've, we've got to the conclusion that all ordinary truths are conditionally scrutable from PQI, as in the original formulation. And for empirical scrutability, perhaps we've got to the conclusion that all non-Fitchian ordinary truths are empirically scrutable from PQI. Okay, so that's a, uh, another way of, of arguing for the, uh, the relevant scrutability conclusion. Now, something to, something to be said. I said I'd revisit premise one. I mean, I think the main substantive premises in this argument, so, I mean, you might want to uh, think about premise eight. Maybe there are other forms of unknowability besides being Fitchian or being remote, and then we could talk about whether that impacts scrutability. But the other key premises are, well, the one... 
are 5 and, and 6 here in the case of premise 1. I'll focus on those. Premise 1, so um, I put this as followed as follows. I call this perceptual knowability. All knowable truths are knowable through perception, introspection, and reasoning. I think for this to work, you've got to give it a slightly tighter formulation. Um, all knowable truths are, are knowable through reasoning from introspective beliefs, those you get so basically from endorsing introspection, beliefs about one's mental states, and uh, through perceptual beliefs, those resulting from endorsing perceptual experience, taking an experience at face value. So I experience a, uh, a brown surface in, uh, in front of me, then an experience that takes that at face value is one that says, okay, there is a brown surface. And the claim is going to be that everything that we can know um, we can know in principle through perception and introspection. And if we can know them through perception and introspection, we can know them. I don't think we have to know them through um, this particular form of forming perceptual and introspective beliefs based on introspection. There are other forms, but the claim is they can be known this way. Then the thought is going to be, well, the contents of the relevant introspective and perceptual beliefs will be built into PQI if we take the generous reading of PQI, or at least, I would argue, scrutable from PQI if not, and then we get to the relevant scrutability conclusion. Now, somebody might question this premise in a few different ways. I mean, it might seem, for example, objectionably foundationalist that uh, one's arguing that all knowledge is grounded in certain foundational bits of knowledge, deliverances of perception about primary secondary qualities, deliverance of introspection. I don't think it's actually making quite such a strong claim. So, I mean, what are the kinds of objections you get to, uh, to foundationalist theses about knowledge or to, or to strong ones like, that, like the one I just mentioned? Well, one of the claims is, one of the obvious thoughts is there are alternative ways to have knowledge not necessarily grounded in those perceptual and introspective beliefs. Some people think that knowledge through testimony is not grounded in perceptual and introspective beliefs. Some people think knowledge through memory is not grounded in perceptual and introspective beliefs. Knowledge through blindsight. Maybe it's not grounded in perceptual experience at all. The knowledge of a chicken sexer isn't obviously grounded in some form of reasoning from, from uh, contents of perceptual beliefs. And nothing here requires denying that these forms of knowledge are possible. It just requires the weaker claim that everything knowable this way is also knowable in principle through reasoning from perceptual and introspective Beliefs. So, you know, what's knowable through testimony is also knowable without using testimony. What's knowable from memory is also knowable without using memory. What the, blind, what the person with blindsight knows can also be known by someone not using blindsight. What the chicken sexer knows can also um, be known through relatively ordinary perceptual um, routes going via beliefs. And I think one can make a pretty plausible case for that. So it doesn't require anything like the strong um, foundationalism. It's still a, clearly a substantive thesis worth thinking about. Another objection at this point is an objection from a high-level contents of perception. Here the thought is that perception doesn't just represent what, what we might call core properties. Let's say core properties are basically primary and secondary qualities. If, if you think that experiences are also represented by perception, we can allow those phenomenal properties in as well. 
So let's say core properties are things like you know, primary, secondary qualities, locations, colors, and so on. Some people think that perception represents non-core properties as well, high-level properties. The property of being a peach, of being Barack Obama, of being alive. So I mean, there's a real dispute here in the, uh, in the philosophy of perception. Some people think that perception just has these core contents, primary, basically colors, shapes, and very thin stuff, whereas some people think there's a whole lot of high-level stuff built in as well, like uh, being a peach, like identities of people, um, natural kinds, and so on. Now, if you take the, uh, the line where perception represents non-core properties, you might think there's an objection here. After all, some perceptual beliefs, if you take this line, some beliefs that take experiences at face value, endorsing their content, will concern these properties directly. And truths knowable using these high-level perceptual beliefs needn't be scrutable from PQI. I think if you had the thin view of perception where it's just colors and shapes, this problem doesn't arise. But if, it, if you have the thick view, then it does. Here I think, I mean, I think there's a lot to say about this objection. It raises all kinds of interesting questions in the epistemology of perception. But the rough strategy for answering it is something like the following. What I'll call, this is a version of the perceptual knowability thesis, but it's a somewhat stronger thesis I'll call the core knowability thesis. All knowable truths are knowable by reasoning from phenomenal beliefs and core perceptual beliefs. I think one could also do that with introspective beliefs and core perceptual beliefs. So we've restricted perceptual beliefs now to core perceptual beliefs, those involving relevant claims about primary and secondary qualities, the core properties um, one can get beliefs about from endorsing perceptual experience. And the key thought here is, sure, there are some things, if there are these high-level contents of perception, there are some things you can know this way. And once you acquire the ability, say, to represent features in perception, then you can come to know certain things that way. But, of course, you can know a whole lot of stuff without using high-level perception. People who don't have the ability to recognize that don't represent peaches directly in perception can still know things about peaches. Some people might acquire the ability to recognize electrons in bubble chamber diagrams. You know, for that to be actually being an electron to be represented in their experience, some people don't. It never quite penetrates their perception in this way. The claim is everything knowable using high-level perception is also knowable in principle without using high-level perception. So although high-level perception has some nice properties, it might even provide all certain psychological and epistemological speed-ups, um, it doesn't provide access to a whole new class of knowledge. Now, how would one uh, argue for that claim? Well, here all I can do is provide just the briefest outline of a strategy for arguing for that claim. I think it deserves a, a lot more attention. But here's a uh, so premise one. You can take a, something as sort of a working, a working hypothesis. I think I can run the argument in principle without it, but it simplifies the argument. For all non-core P, take these to be non-core propositions. P could be a proposition or a property. It doesn't, uh, it doesn't matter. Say involving peaches or involving Obama. All perceptual experience, all direct perceptual experience of P and all perceptual knowledge that results from resulting from endorsing those perceptual experiences is produced by, is at least causally grounded in transitions from core representations. So take this as an empirical claim about the perceptual system, if you like, that you know, perception, at least at the, at the early stages of perception, involved the representation of things like color and spatiotemporal properties, and later representations of more complex stuff, like being a peach, is grounded 
in transitions from those core representations. I think it's at least a plausible empirical claim about, uh, about perception, not unarguable with. I think if one argues, I think if one denies it, there's still going to be something which is enough like it to get the argument going. Second, for all non-core properties or propositions P, if perceptual knowledge of P is produced by these transitions from core representations, the knowledge of P can be produced by inference from core beliefs. So here the thought is, if there are certain transitions from core, if we've accepted the first premise, there are certain core representations, say, of color, shape, and the like, and transitions from there to, uh, say, experiences of peaches and beliefs about peaches that constitute knowledge. So the claim here is that, okay, well, if you can do that, then it can also be broadly analogous transitions to start with representations that are, in fact, beliefs. So start with a perceptual experience of the relevant color and shapes, colors and shapes, endorse them to form core perceptual beliefs. Then, in principle, there could be inferences from their reasoning starting from those beliefs that results in knowledge of P. I, mean, I think it's pretty clear there could be, at least be beliefs, and the claim would be if the first kind can give you knowledge, the second kind can give you knowledge as well. Third, for all non-core propositions or properties P, this is the conclusion, if perceptual knowledge of P is possible, knowledge of P can produce by inference, by inference from core perceptual beliefs. So, I mean, there's a lot to say about that argument. I think there's a lot to, there's a lot to say in particular about the, uh, the second premise. But that's the rough idea here. If you can get all the knowledge of this sort, looks like it's ultimately grounded in certain core representations by transitions from these core representations. If you can get there from these core representations, you could in principle get there from core perceptual beliefs. Those core perceptual beliefs are the kind of thing you could get from a cosmoscope or from PQI. So, hence, scrutability. A lot to say about that. Maybe uh, something to think about, in, uh, something to talk about in discussion. It's certainly an issue I haven't gotten all the way to the bottom of yet. Finally, I'll just say something about objections, and in particular, objections from idealization. I mean, there's, this, there's been idealizations hanging around in the background for the last couple of lectures. Way back at the start, I had Laplace's idealization, a Laplacean intellect, an intellect vast enough to put all this data under analysis. I've talked about ideal reasoning at various points. And it won't have escaped your attention that some of these idealizations are, in fact, fairly large. Um, it looks like these arguments for scrutability require very strong idealizations of reasoning, of memory, and so on. Even to, you know, for, for somebody to, uh, to store all the, to entertain the hypothesis that PQTI is the case, this may well require infinite capacity, an infinitary reasoning using, um, using the, uh, the propositions so represented. Now, the cosmoscope offload some of the relevant idealization from, you know, from the thinker to their environment. But, well, A, that just shifts the bump in the rug to the, uh, to the device, and B, it's not as if no idealization is still required on the, path, on the path of the thinker. Some idealization is still required. And, you know, at this point, there are a number of natural objections. I mean, I think one, you know, one, one objection that one sometimes gets at this point is the famous incredulous stare. It's just, you know, oh, boy. You know, well, what on earth could we possibly say about that kind of um, idealization? I think once one moves beyond the, uh, the incredulous stare, there's really about three different, at least three different 
objections in the vicinity, which I'll just I'll close by mentioning. So first of all is what we might call a conceptual objection. The idealization just isn't well defined. Well, I think, you know, as I've defined it, at least in the, uh, in the theses at the beginning of this, it's defined in terms of notions of possibility and knowledge. What it's possible for thinkers to know or what it's possible for thinkers to know starting from certain um, starting from certain starting points. Now, I take it that infinitary reasoners are possible. I mean, as Russell said, the ability to entertain uh, certain infinite conjunctive hypotheses about the integers, um, our inability to our, the impossibility of our doing that is a mere medical impossibility. It's, um, it doesn't, no obvious reason why it's impossible in principle. Um, and even if they're not, there are still facts. So infinitary reasons are presumably possible. There are facts about what they can know. So if you're a realist about possibility and about knowledge, I don't see an obstacle to, to there being facts here. There are interesting questions about what to do with the idealization if you're the kind of philosopher who thinks there may be brute restrictions on the, uh, the space of metaphysically possible worlds so that just say it turned out that you know um, no reasoner could uh, ever go through more than a million steps in, a, uh, in an argument process. That was just metaphysically impossible for some reason. I would then want to understand the idealization so that it still comes out in relevant sense as something that's, uh, for example, as something, which is, something which is provable only by two million steps of reasoning would still come out a priori. We could talk about alternative ways of understanding the idealization then. Um, epistemological objection. We can't know what these reasoners could know. These, these ideal reasoners, they're so far beyond us. Why, what's, what's the point in us even talking about them, given we can't really know we're so non-ideal, we can't know what they could know. Well, I'm inclined to think we can know some such truths, albeit fallibly. I mean, I'm inclined to think, insofar as we can know mathematical truths at all, we can know that ideal reasoners would be in a position to know them. And, you know, insofar as there's stuff that looks like it's just impossible in principle to know a priori, like claims about distributions of particles in the universe, then we can know that an ideal reasoner could not know these, those things a priori. Now, sure, we're non-ideal, so our knowledge of such truths is fallible, but that's okay. I mean, our knowledge of most things is fallible because of our non-ideality. Furthermore, the argument doesn't require that we know the, uh, the truths in question. What matters is there be a certain connection between what's true and what's ideally knowable. If we're wrong about what's true, we'll also be wrong about what's ideally knowable and vice versa. But as long as the two track each other, that's okay. Perhaps the deepest and most worrying objection in this vicinity is what we might call the objection from applicability. This idealization is just so large that what on earth can we possibly learn from it? What can facts about that about what ideal reasoners can do. What can that tell us about non-ideal reasoners like ourselves? So applications, say, to the philosophy of language and content might be thrown into question here. I think this is, this is very much an objection worth thinking about, but it really depends on the, uh, on the application. Some of the applications to more metaphysical spheres and to, uh, to more idealized epistemological theses is clearly not going to be an objection insofar as, for certain objections, we're just trying to to draw certain conclusions about non-ideal beings like us, there's at least going to be a worry that comes up here that we're going to have to think about, and there's going to have to be a lot to say at that point. I think, though, assessing that really depends on the application in question, so we can defer that discussion to when we actually talk about applications. At this point, I'm happy just to be making a case for the scrutability thesis in its uh, relevant idealized form. So, okay, I think that's enough today, so I'll stop there. Thank you.